Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher, and the slave as his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. He who receives you, receives me. He who receives me, receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink. Truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. As we've been preaching through Matthew's gospel account, as you know in the last several messages, we've looked at the fact in Matthew chapter 10 that Jesus has sent out his twelve apostles to preach the kingdom of God is at hand. He has given them authority over the demonic realm. He's given them in his name to do miraculous deeds, uh, to heal all kinds of diseases, to raise even the dead. But he has sent them only to the household of Israel, to the cities of Israel. Why? Because we said Israel was the national uh, covenant people of God. Uh, they had great privilege by the fact that they were the chosen nation out of all the nations of the earth. Therefore, it is only right, as Paul said, that the gospel should go to the Jews first. The Jews awaited their Messiah. They needed to hear that the Messiah had arrived at last, all these centuries going by. All the, the hopes and the dreams of people that the Messiah would come, it is, it is dawned in human history. He's, he's now arrived. And therefore, the Jews 
We're a great privileged people, but with great privilege comes great responsibility. The responsibility is receive your king. Receive the Messiah. And yet they weren't, but they were to be sent to Israel first. We saw uh, that Paul, uh, Jesus said that in verse 23, he says, when, when people will persecute you, we looked at last week, that uh, Jesus said, I'm sending you out as sheep amidst the wolves. Uh, <clears throat> people are not going to like you. And he, he predicted all kinds of persecution which took place, as we saw in the book of Acts. And he says, when you're persecuted in one city, flee to the next. All you have to do is read the missionary uh, journeys of Paul, and you'll see that when he was preaching that the angry, unbelieving Jews would rise up, persecute him, he would leave, just like Jesus said, but they would often follow him from one town to the next, causing trouble everywhere he went. So... One of the sad realities of our time is that of what I refer to as the presence of easy believism. Now, what do I mean by easy believism? Well, what that means is some people will confess the Lord Jesus as their Lord and Savior, but yet they don't demonstrate in their daily lives allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all an empty profession. Remember, we've already seen in Matthew 7, Jesus says, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. So simply mouthing the fact that I belong to Jesus isn't good enough. There has to be the presence of real faith. And if you have real saving faith, it will show in your life. So, what Jesus is saying here in no uncertain terms, he will lay out the cost of discipleship, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a genuine Christian. So our section today is dealing precisely with what it means, in verses 24 and following, what it means to be truly in the faith. We can see that... <clears throat> Jesus said, um, in Matthew 10:16, he said that he was sending them out, as I've already noted, as, as sheep amongst uh, wolves, preaching the gospel, historically has been a very, uh, has not been an easy task. It's often been a dangerous task. We see it in the life of the apostles uh, down through church history, you'll see. Uh, and you are fully aware of how dangerous it can be, even today, in 2013, depending where you are in the world, uh, is at great risk that people preach the gospel still. And so Jesus, in Matthew 10, 24 and 25, he makes it clear that his preachers, as his disciples, and what we need to see here, he's getting... Let me clarify this. He's speaking to his apostles, but it's, it's evident that what he is saying is not just true about his apostles, but it's true with regard to everybody who calls upon the Lord Jesus. So it's applicable to everyone what he says, but particularly to his preachers, because that's the context. 
he says here, uh, in verses 24-25, he says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher, and the slave is his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more are the members of his household? What Jesus is saying to his disciples, the twelve, and really it's true of all Christians, he says, look, if they hate me, the master, and they call me Beelzebul, which we're going to see is a term, they call Jesus Satan himself. If they call me Satan, do you think you're going to fare better in your treatment as the slave? Hardly. So he's, he's living it, setting out for them uh, what's involved, what life will be like for Christians many times. It's not an easy road. Jesus says, if they have not revered me, surely you're not going to be respected either. So all of us, especially as preachers, need to be realized we are in a great spiritual war with the forces of darkness. I mean, Paul makes that very clear, does he not, in Ephesians chapter 6, when he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Because he says, if we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, we are wrestling with principalities and powers in high places. And what he's referring to is... That Satan and the demonic world is the real is where the real conflict is, and so where there is persecution going on in the world, and when people are hating Christians and seeking to harm them, who is behind that? Satan and his demonic realm is behind it. They're the masterminds of it. The Scripture makes it very clear when there are wars out there, who's behind that? Satan is the one. He is Abaddon. He's the destroyer. And so we are engaged in the spiritual war. That's the reality. I hope you understand that's who you're fighting. You've got a realm, a spiritual realm that you've got to deal with. And remember, as Paul says, Satan has those fiery darts that he's shooting at us. And he says the only way that you can stop it is put the shield of faith up. And therefore, the battle is real. And so we can see that Jesus tells us that he was called Beelzebul, and meaning that the Pharisees accused him of being the devil himself. Now, Beelzebul is a New Testament variation of the term Beelzebub. Now, have you heard of Baal, Baal worship? Bell worship was a very common worship in the ancient world. It was ancient fertility rites, basically, is what Bell worship was. And you know what Bell Zebub meant? Lord of the dumb. That's what it meant. And it was commonly understood in Jesus, when we get to Matthew 12, Jesus is going to make it very clear that Beelzebul is a clear reference to Satan. So that Jesus was accused not only just being filled with a demon, Jesus was accused of being the devil himself. By the way, that's why 
when we get to Matthew 12, we're talking about the uh, unforgivable sin. Some people are worried. Have I? I've had that brought up over the years several times by people really concerned. Says, Pastor, have I committed the unforgivable sin? I said, Well, for one thing, the fact that you're concerned about it already means you probably haven't done it. <laughs> because the unforgivable sin, essentially, we're going to see in context, is there is attributing the works of the devil to the works of God. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. Uh, they, everything that Jesus did, they said, you do by the power of the devil. And he says, oh, really? I, I'm not going to spoil my message there. Otherwise, we have to pass over Matthew 12, so you have to wait. But, but Jesus makes it very clear that that term, Beelzebub, referred to Satan. And he was being accused of being Satan himself. And he says, look, that's what they call me. And that's how they treated me. So you're going to don't think you're going to be treated any less severe than me. And that's why he says what he does. But notice in verse uh, 26 and 24, I mean, uh, verses 26 and 27, as fierce as this spiritual battle may rage, and it can get intense. As intense as this spiritual warfare gets, Jesus says, fear not. Don't be afraid. Because look, look, look what he says, verse 26, 27. Therefore, do not fear. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. What you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim from the housetops. What Jesus is saying to us, do not fear your tormentors. All of Christ's enemies are going to be revealed one day. You know, sometimes we don't know who our enemies are. Sometimes our enemies come and they, 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 they feign like they're our, they're our friends and they stab us in the back. Sometimes you don't know who they are. But I'll tell you this, God knows every one of them. God knows every one of his enemies. And all those conspiracies, and so, you know, some say, well, I'm not a conspiracy theorist and all this thing. Well, the likelihood, a lot of them may be true. But, you know, it doesn't matter because Jesus still has it all under control. And he knows who all those are that are conspiring against his church. He knows it all. There is nothing... Um, that gets by him. Let me just mention several scriptures. And why uh, we are not to fear them. He says, uh, for example, in Ecclesiastes 12.14, he says, For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Nothing gets by God. He knows all things. Nothing will get by him. Romans 2.16, talking about the Gentiles. The Jews have the law of God. They'll be held accountable to, by that law. The Gentiles, who don't have the law of God, nonetheless have consciences who are regulated who show the works of the law in their conscience because they defend themselves or they accuse themselves. But then he goes on, Paul says, in verse uh, Romans 2.16, he says, On that day, referring to Judgment Day, when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. 
There will be no, all secrets will be revealed on that day. Uh, by the way, this, I will have you turn over to a couple passages. Turn over to Luke eight seventeen. For nothing is hidden that shall not become evident, nor anything secret that shall not be known and come to light. And then turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from above. The whole point here is evil men get by with nothing. Now, we get disappointed in that, right? We, we want God to just come and squash his enemies immediately. But what does God says? Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will avenge those who need to be avenged. And God says, every evil thought, everything conceived in the minds of these wicked men who think they're getting away with everything, he says, no, on that great day they will be exposed and I will bring vengeance and they will go into eternal destruction. Everything will be revealed. Everything. On that day. So, but turn back to Luke ten twenty seven. Jesus said, "Not only are the uh, wicked schemes of men going to be revealed on that day, Jesus has told his disciples. He said, "What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops." And Jesus told his disciples mysteries. Now, mystery is not something, uh, a mystery in the scripture is something that you and I would never, ever understand unless God grants us the ability to understand it. It's not like watching a murder mystery where if you try real hard, and if you're as good as Columbo or somebody else, you can figure it out. No. It is the fact that he says, I have revealed to you wonderful mysteries. Now, here's what's interesting. In a lot of the parables, remember the parables of Jesus, and as we go through Matthew, we'll see some of those parables. The parables were not given to uh, help men understand truth. They were given in many regards to keep the truth from them. And Jesus says, but I've told you the meaning. I will tell you the meaning. And so here's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. There are some things I am whispering to you so that you'll shout it from the housetops. Now what he said? What I've whispered in your ear, you will proclaim from the housetops. What? The glories of the gospel. Now, to show you what great mystery he's referring to, Turn with me to, to Romans 16. Look at verse 25 and 26. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, 
which has been kept secret from long ages past, but now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith. You see, what the great mystery was, the gospel in its full revelation was a mystery. But in the, with the coming of Christ, all has been opened up. And he says, it has now been manifested. All the promises of the scripture have been manifested to being true. And he says, now I have been telling you these mysteries along the way. I've been telling you the means of these parables. I've been telling you all these precious promises to which now you are to proclaim the mouth stops. You let the whole world know this. You're to take this message to the four corners of the earth. That's what he says, that you may make known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith, so that the nations may hear this great truth of the gospel and believe. So, what Jesus is saying to his disciples in this context, and, and it applies to everybody, not just the heralds, the official heralds of the gospel, but to any of us, because we're all under obligation to bear testimony of the truth. He says, in light of that, in your proclaiming or in your uh, giving testimony to this gospel, don't be afraid of those who can only kill the body. Turn back to Matthew 10. <laughs> because he says here, look at verse 28. Don't fear, do not fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to keep, destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't be afraid of those who can only kill you physically. Now you may say, are you kidding, preacher? I mean, that's pretty serious. I mean, dying is a serious thing, don't you think? God says, not really. Yes, in one sense it might be serious. I mean, who wants to physically die? But he says, you know, your greatest concern is this. Don't ever be afraid of those who can only kill you physically. The only one you really need to be afraid of is the one who has the capacity not only to kill you physically, but it can destroy your soul in hell. And who is he talking about? My father. God. God is the only one who can destroy both the body and the soul. That's who you need to be concerned about. Not just the physical uh, harm that others may bring to you. After all, you know the problem here is that we often have in being concerned about having our bodies killed. And when Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who can only kill the body, here's what Jesus is driving at. You need to have the eternal perspective. And what is that eternal perspective? You've heard me talk about that before. 
The eternal perspective is the notion that we are but like a flower that blooms today, tomorrow withers and is gone. We're like the vapor that you see for a moment and then it's gone, fleeting. That's your life. That is your life. Now look, you may live to be 60 years old. The Bible says if you live, if you get to 70, that's good. If you get to 80, you have exceeded. It says a due strength, 80 years. I've talked to some people uh, like G.I. Williamson, my aunt, others, your godly people. I've said, you know, the Lord has blessed you beyond what's even considered the best. Now, get that. He's like 87. He's beyond the 80s. I mean, he's really blessed of God. But even if you live to be 100, tell me, what is 100 years in the light of eternity? Nothing, right? It's like a speck of sand on the seashore. It's nothing. So, don't be, Jesus says, don't be concerned about those who can only kill your body. Because at best, you know, if you get to be 100, that's absolutely amazing, but that's nothing. We are headed towards eternity. All of us are headed towards eternity. And and whom we need to be most concerned about is our relationship to God. And if we're not right with God, we need to be concerned. We need to be afraid in the right sense and remedy it. How do we remedy it? Believe in Jesus. Be right with Him. Walk with Him in every respect. That's what you have to do. So... This plane of existence, our physical life, is nothing in the light of eternity. You know, men cannot get at your soul no matter how much they may torture you physically. I've told you about those stories that you can read about Christians being thrown into the Roman arenas in Rome and Ephesus and other places where they let out the, the, the uh, savage dogs and wolves, lions. And it says, eyewitness accounts is that these Christians were singing hymns of praise to God. Why? They were not afraid of those who can kill the body because they knew it's going to be over pretty fast. And then they would be in the presence of their Lord. Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Be concerned about he who can destroy your soul in hell forever. They knew their soul was right. They were right with the Lord. So there was no concern. That's why they could be singing right up to the point of their death. And so what we see here is that... Let's turn to Romans 8, 35 and 39 and let this passage thrill us. Um, Turn over to Romans 8, 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were counted as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things... We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, isn't that comforting? Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. They can kill us. So what? Won't we'll us be in the presence of Jesus? Do you have that perspective? You ought to. You know, <clears throat> hell is a real place. I don't know if you realize this. Jesus referred to hell more than he referred to heaven. That ought to tell us that if the Lord of glory says it's a real place, we ought to be concerned we don't end up there. And so the fool, according to Jesus, is the person who tries hard to save their body at all costs while their spiritual uh, life is neglected. That's the fool in the Scripture. And you see the reason that God tells his preachers that they can be bold and tell all Christians to bear testimony without fear is because it doesn't matter what the God-haters do to us. You see, look at our text. Turn back to Matthew 10. Look what Jesus says. When he says, don't be afraid of those who don't kill the body, but God who can kill your soul. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore, do not fear. You are more value than many sparrows. Don't let anybody ever tell you that there is not a gradation of life forms on planet Earth. There is. Man is the apex of creation. Jesus says, I don't care what the environmentalists want to tell us, what the evolutionists want to tell us. Man is not simply more evolved. No, man is uh, male and female. Man is the apex of creation, made in his image. Nothing like it. We are special. We, Jesus says you are more important than the sparrows. Now, it says here, you know, this, this sparrow, he says a sparrow is, is sold for a cent. You know what a cent was? He's referring to a Roman copper coin that was worth one-sixteenth of a denarius. Now, a denarius in that time was equivalent to a day's wage for a common worker. So he says a cent is one-sixteenth of that, basically nothing. And Jesus says, look, if this sparrow who's worth only a cent, and God knows every sparrow that falls on the ground, there is no sparrow, there is no creature, if he gets up as high as Mount Everest, which I don't think it does, but I don't care where these little birds are, where these creatures are hidden away, or they could be in the depths of the sea. Every creature God has under control. He knows everything that happens to them. And so Jesus is saying, look, if God knows 
the death of a sparrow, and it's worth only a cent, do you think he's watching over you, especially if you're in Satan? Of course. That's why you're not to be afraid. And then he says, the reason, verse 30 says, but the very hairs of your head are all numbered. You know, normally we're not that much uh, know when a hair falls out, although I know more falling out than that is more we're living. Normally a hair will fall out and you don't even know whatever happened. It's, it's falling out and you didn't even realize it. Okay? The, the whole point here is God has numbered all the hairs. He's showing the intimate knowledge of God over us. Therefore, my preachers, you think anything can come to them that God isn't allowing? Of course not. Is anything coming to you as a Christian that God doesn't, is not aware of? Of course not. Don't be afraid. The reason that you're not to be afraid is because of the omnipresence of God, the uh, everywhere presence of God, the omniscience of God, that he knows all things, and the omnipotence of God, that he is all-powerful. So the reality is this, brethren. If you are afraid of something, if you are afraid of what non-Christians may do to you, the problem is that you don't have a high enough view of the Lord your God. And you need to get your thinking in line with Scripture and let Jesus guide us and say, look, you need to understand God is sovereign and has everything under control. Once you realize that, once you realize they can't get at your soul, you can do whatever you want to me. That's why Christians historically and godly preachers historically, you can't stop them. You know, when you can't threaten someone... Uh, enough and say, well, I'll kill you. And you say, so? I can care less. You think that's going to stop me? And so what we see here is that because God is so intimately aware of our lives, we're not to be afraid of what others can do to us. But mind you, I'm going to bring you back. The only person you need to be concerned about is your relationship with God. If you're not right with God, you have something to be afraid of. So get right with God. You can destroy your soul in hell forever. Don't let that happen. Now, look at verse um, 32 and following. Jesus is laying out the demands of discipleship, what it's like. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father is in heaven. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his, her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. So at this, <clears throat> this point, there's no such thing as a closet Christian. I've had people say, talk about Jesus, and tell me about your relationship. I've encountered a few who they say they're Christians. Well, tell me about it. And they say, well, 
my Christianity is a private thing. They won't even share with me a testimony that they were a believer in Jesus. I'll tell you this. If someone is ashamed or unwilling to tell me that they're a Christian, what does Jesus says? If you're not willing to confess me publicly before men on judgment day, don't expect me to confess you before my father. That's what he just said. You deny me before men, I'm going to deny you before my father. If you're ashamed of me and you call yourself a closet Christian, well, you'll remain in your closet in hell forever because that's what's going to happen. He's setting out what it means to be a genuine Christian. Christians want to tell others about what God has done to them. They do. It's natural. For those who really are saved, in this regard, notice uh, to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior uh, means that we acknowledge him, we're willing to live for him, we are willing to die for him, we're willing to publicly stand with him, that people know very clearly where we stand with Christ. That's what it means to have Jesus as Lord and Savior. Now, when Jesus confesses a person, he claims him as his own, and he pleads their cause. So what Jesus is saying, if in this life you are willing to stand with me, then rest assured on that day I'm going to stand with you and confess you before my Father. All is going to be well. You know, there's a couple of good passages I want us to take a look at. First, turn over to, to John 17. Look what was on the heart of Jesus right before his crucifixion. Look at verses 6 through 11, John 17. I manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest me them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they have come to know that everything thou hast given me is from thee. For the words which thou gave me, I have given to them. They received them and truly understood that I came forth from thee. They believed that thou didst send me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but those whom thou hast given me, for they are thine. And all things that are mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And I am no more in the world, yet they themselves are in the world. I have come to thee, Holy Father. Keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. And then Jesus, the book of Hebrews says that Jesus uh, <clears throat> intercedes for us continually as a high priest. Now turn back to Matthew 10. When it says here, for example... Look at verses 34 to 37. Now, you may find this perplexing, or it could be troublesome. I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother. Um, I, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Now, wait a minute. I can say, time out. Jesus... I thought 
Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, in the promise of the coming Messiah, I thought that scripture says that the increase of his government of peace, there shall be no end. Yes, that is what that says. Well, preacher, I thought Zechariah 6.13 in the prophecy of the coming Messiah says that he will be a priest on his throne, meaning that he will be a kingly priest. That Jesus will be after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of Aaron. And what does it mean to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek? Melchizedek was a kingly priest. What was he king of? Salem. You know what the word Salem means in the Old Testament? Peace. So he will bring peace in his kingdom. So wait a minute. Did it really mean that? Yes, it really means that. Well, you know, when we get to Matthew 11, Jesus says, Come to me, all you that are heavy laden and are burdensome. And you will find rest. It kind of sounds peaceful, doesn't it? I, I, I thought that was true. Well, yes, it is. I thought Romans 5.1 says that we are justified by faith, and therefore we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Yes, it says that. So is there a contradiction in the Bible? No, there's no contradiction in the Bible. We understand, you've got to understand what Jesus was saying here. He says, my demands, being the Savior of men's souls, is demanding. And the effect, the effect of having me as Lord and Savior will have consequences among those who hate me, who hate God. So that those who hate God... As Jesus says, hate the light, and they will not come to the light. And those who hate God hate Jesus, and they hate all those who are identified with Jesus. And so we see that, yes, when Jesus came, here's what he says is going to be the impact of having me as Lord in your life. It will make sometimes enemies in your own family. As hard as it may seem to think, it will turn parents against children, children against parents. Now you know, or do you know what happens if you're a, a Muslim and you convert to Christianity? You know what Muhammad says in the Quran? He says, death to all those who apostatize. Which is why they have what they call in Islam, honor murders. Where, when somebody in the family converts to Christ, the rest of the family is under obligation to kill. That is part of Sharia law. That's part of Muslim law. So that when these Muslims in various parts of the country, the United States, there is a movement that says we want to be governed in our own communities 
by our own law, Sharia law, what that means is that if someone is converted, if we were to allow that, that means if somebody in that community is converted to Christ, they want to have the right to have an honor killing to kill that Christian convert. See how serious it is? While we must not allow them to have one inch of ground in this land. Pastor Moorcraft tells a story about uh, an African young man who his father told him that if he ever were to convert to Christianity, he would drive a spear through the chest of his son. The young man becomes a Christian. He comes back to his father and goes into the tent of his father, rips open his shirt, and he says, Father, I have come to be a Christian. Go ahead. But his father did not drive a spear through him. He, he, he talked to his father about Christ and led that father to Christ. It's a real thing out there. Jesus said, Having me as Lord will have an impact in your own families. Some Christian families, they may not go to the extent of killing one another, but they may ostracize someone. Remember the lady, the, the lady in New York I told you about, who is an Indian? She says, I'm already, I can't talk to my family. I'm ostracized as a Christian for my family. They will have nothing to do with me. And so it's, the persecution is real. And those who hate Christ, hate those who belong to Him, even if it's, He says, it will pit family members, parents against their own children. Notice what Jesus says also. He says, He, now, is that going to stop you from being a Christian? Is that going to stop you from being, having Jesus as Lord? He says in verse 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Here's what he's saying. He says, when, to have me as Lord and Savior means I've got to be number one in your life. No other relationship takes priority over your relationship to me. Blood doesn't trump the gospel. It doesn't. And whatever the ramifications may be, they, that's the way they are. We must maintain fidelity to Christ. We must do what His Word says. And despite if it uh, means that some members of our family are offended, Jesus says, look, that's the impact it's going to be. But he says the moment, now here, here's what he says, verse 39, He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. So Jesus is saying, in all of your daily activities, if when you're faced with a decision, you choose yourself and your own interests above those of Christ in a desire to, to, to make life easy for yourself, he says, you're already lost. You've lost it all. 
You don't have me as Lord. You're not with me. And I'm not going to confess you before my Father. But he says, if you have lost your life for my sake, in other words, you're willing to pay any price to be a Christian, even if it means they have to kill you physically, then he says, you actually have found it. Because you're going to be with me, I will confess you before my Father. Enter to the joys of your Father, to eternal glory. And he says, look, if you're going to be a Christian, here's what he says. Look at uh, verse 38. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Now, you understand what the taking of the cross, picking up your cross, means, don't you? The Romans are the ones who uh, came up with crucifixion. To add insult to injury, if you can phrase it this way, the Romans, when they were going to crucify you, made the victim carry their own instrument of death. That's what they did to Jesus. Made him remember he was having to carry his cross. I mean, the cross. It got to unbearable, and a guy came in to carry it for him because he just had been whipped and beaten uh, so much he couldn't make it all the way to where he was going to be crucified. But it was a common custom. So what that means to bear the cross? It means to suffer for his sake. So what Jesus is saying, if you're not willing to suffer for my sake, you're not worthy of me. You're not worthy of me. So they they ask you, do you believe in Jesus? If you do, we're going to kill you. What are you going to say? Just kill me. But if you try to protect your life, you're going to lose it. If you try to protect your life, you're not willing to suffer for my sake. You're not worthy of me. You see, the, do you see why a lot of people didn't follow Jesus? We're told in Luke 14, when Jesus turned to the crowd and said these terms, all the people said, no, I don't think so. I, if that's what it means to be a Christian, uh, I don't think so. Brethren, the, the demand, I, I'm not the one making up these demands. I hope you understand that. I'm just telling you as a preacher what Jesus is saying. You're reading it for yourself. Jesus is the one who makes the demands. By the way, he's the Lord. He can make the demands whatever he wants, right? And that's what he does. Well, Jesus says here, he ends this section. He's talking to his preachers now, his disciples. He who receives you receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones. Now you see why I told you that preachers are his little ones? Because that's what he called preachers. His little ones. If you give one of my little ones a cup of cold water, you shall not lose your reward. 
Now, what Jesus is making very clear here is that he preaches through his preachers. I was going to bring out two texts for you. We've dealt with this before, but turn with me to Romans 10 and look at verses 13 through 15. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How shall they call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. You know why it says, and it's quoting out of Isaiah, you know why the feet of preachers are said to be beautiful? Because wherever their feet takes them, they're bringing the gospel to people, the good news. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. How can they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Here's what he's saying. Through the preacher, you hear me, Jesus. When the preacher is faithful, you're hearing me. That's why I turn over to Luke 10. This is why Jesus says what he does in Luke 10. Look at Luke 10, verse 16. The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. See, all the preachers are, are his little ones, his ambassadors, his heralds, his proclaimers, and Jesus says, when they proclaim the gospel, I am preaching through them to you. So when you don't listen to the preacher who says, repent and believe in Jesus, you've just spurned, turned your back on Jesus, and he says, you've rejected me. So, what is the demands? Jesus told his, his disciples, I'm sending you out like sheep amongst wolves. It's going to be a dangerous thing. There are going to be people that will hate you, but don't be afraid because they hated me first. They think I'm the devil. If they think I'm the devil, they're going to think you're not any better. But don't be afraid of them. All they can do to you is kill your body. So what? So what? That's all they can do to you. When you can't intimidate me, with the threat of physical death, you can't stop me because I will still tell you whatever I want to tell you because I could care less. I still like that story of, of the Scott Covenanters. I've told you that before. Of the preacher, I mean, to, to preach the Reformed faith in Scotland was a death penalty to those of the crown who did not like the Reformed faith. So they would gather these preachers up and they would hang them. And they were getting ready to hang this one preacher, you can read it in one of these great books I have. And said, I forget his name. They always let these people speak. I don't know why they let them speak. <laughs> to the cut of them speak. So the preacher is speaking, 
And he got through. You know, they put these hoods on the heads, and then they would hang them. They put the, the hood on his head, and he goes, whoa, 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 wait, I'm not through. And he pulls it off. He says, i got something more to say. They let him preach some more. He says, now I'm through. <laughs> then they hanged him. <laughs> he could care less. He could care less what they did to him. Don't fear those who can kill your body, but fear God who can destroy your, your body and your soul in hell. So if you're not right with God, get right with God. Get right with Jesus. Listen to his preachers who are faithful. Let us pray.